Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Israel finally has a government. For real. This is not one of those Israel just had an election conversations or Israel almost has a government conversations or anything like that. There's a prime minister named Benjamin Netanyahu, you may have heard of him, and something new called an alternate prime minister. He's named Benny Gantz. And if all goes according to plan, he will switch places with Netanyahu in a year and a half, becoming prime minister in November 2021. There's a cabinet, there are Knesset committees. For the first time in nearly a year and a half, the legislature and the executive are fully back open for business, with appropriate social distancing, of course. With us now to help explain what to expect from this new government is Gil Hoffman, chief political correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. Gil, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure being with you, Steffi. Israel just went through 16 months without a government, or really with just kind of a bare-bones caretaker government. What did that mean, practically, for the state? Well, Steffi, uh, it's been since December 24th of 2018. It's a long time to not have a fully functioning government. To put into perspective how long ago that was, the number one movie in America at the time was Aquaman. <laughs> People tend to not remember Aquaman very much. And so uh, during that time, it now remained the prime minister. He, he was in charge of our security just like at any other time. But the government was limited in the decisions that it could make. We couldn't appoint a new police chief, for instance. We couldn't uh, make very big changes in budgets, even when there was a need. We're very limited in what we could do. In general, a government is a good thing to have. It was a crazy time, I think, for Israeli journalists uh, as well, with a big breaking news story seemingly coming up every day and lots of rumors being reported all the time. As a leading Israeli political journalist yourself, how important do you think the media was to this year of elections? The media had plenty of influence over our politicians and perhaps not enough because we did not put enough pressure on the politicians to serve the people better. They went to election after election after election because they thought that what their people wanted was for them to keep their promises to them. They thought that to be a successful politician, you need to not lie. The truth is the opposite. We were waiting for them to lie. They were saying during the campaign, I won't sit with this person. I won't form a government with him. After the election, they were supposed to then admit they were lying and then form <laughs> governments. They didn't. They didn't compromise. They kept promises. Only after the third election did the media, maybe it was coronavirus, have enough pressure on these politicians to finally admit that they were lying all along, finally stop keeping their promises, start compromising. And that is why we have a government today. You know, there's this interesting kind of political argument that makes the rounds in, in certain, you know, niches in America. I don't, I don't think it's a widely discussed thing that actually part of the reason why our government is so broken here is because of good government measures that got rid of smoke filled rooms. If you don't have those kind of smoke filled back rooms where people can, you know, out of the public eye 
kind of come to those compromises and and yes, you know, maybe betray their their voters a little bit. Um, but in the interest of moving the country forward and doing good things for the country, compromising, as you said, then you can't really govern effectively. Is Israel known for a kind of culture of smoke filled back rooms? Or is that not really, you know, part of the political culture in Israel? Absolutely. Uh, the Labour Party used to run this country uh, on its own, make all its decisions by itself in the one party. And the they ruled everything and everybody knew it. And uh, they would make those big decisions without really consulting the people. And, and that's changed over time. The Likud is in power, but it's not in power of most of the media. The media, much of it remains left-wing and, and anti-Netanyahu. And that's not necessarily reflective of the people according to the polls or according to the votes. You know, you mentioned the, the Labor Party, which is you know, basically the party of David Ben-Gurion, of Golda Meir, um, of Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres. And really for the first 30 years of Israel's existence, elections weren't suspenseful things. The Labor Party was was going to win. It was only a question of, you know, which partners they might need to work with as they govern the country. That changed uh, at the end of the 1970s when uh, when Menachem Begin won and, and brought Likud to power. And labor has kind of been on a downward trajectory ever since, culminating now, I think there are three members of Knesset from the Labor Party uh, in this newest Knesset. Only um, one of them is authentically labor. Right, right. So what does that mean? What 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 does it mean for Israel you know, I'm someone who really appreciates the history, but I guess this is a question really about the present and the future. What does it mean for Israel that its founding party is in such dire straits? So first of all, it shows that, that the people who were made up the, the second Israel, the, the, the masses, the Sephardi immigrants from African Muslim countries took over in the 1970s. They made bonds with the religious Zionists and with the ultra-Orthodox, and they were able to come to power and they have not fully come to power in everything yet. There's still a legal establishment that they're underrepresented in. There's still the media that they're underrepresented in. The pollsters, these are the people that they could run against and say, we will finally take power over them. Now, the Labour Party suffered from poor leadership and also from peace processes that were not successful and people held them accountable for it. Since those peace processes in the 1990s that gave so many people hope, We've had uh, suicide bombers and shootings and stabbings and car rammings and uh, rockets and terror tunnels. And that could make people fear that the next thing that would fly over the border from Gaza isn't going to be a white dove. And uh, that made people more skeptical, more careful with their votes, put security uh, as a higher priority and less willing to take risks. And that has led the Likud party and the right wing to be more powerful recently. And uh, yet that could be something that could lead toward there being a peace process again very soon, uh, with the whole proverbial, it took Nixon to go to China, maybe it's Netanyahu, who uh, even after all these years will finally set a border for the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to come back to that border conversation in a minute. But just staying on the parties, you know, the new government is an interesting one in that it includes both the right wing Likud and what's left or, or actually most of what's left of the left wing Labor Party. I guess two of the three Labor MKs have gone into the government, plus blue and white, that kind of main, you know, center left coalition partner has several, you know, legitimately left wing figures. So we have this government that includes, you know, the right and the center left. But it excludes the two most right-wing parties, Yamina and Yisrael Beitenu, 
and the two most left-wing parties, Meretz and the Joint List. So it spans the center, but oddly, it doesn't actually include the real centrist party, Yesh Atid. So does this coalition of somewhat odd bedfellows tell us anything about the state of Israeli society? It says that Israel is not suffering through hyperpolarization the way America is. Hmm. Our elections have not been right-wing versus left-wing uh, with great animosity between the two, like your current election is, and certainly the last one was. In fact, if anything, in Israel, we have more consensus than we've ever had on key diplomatic issues, security issues, and economic issues. You will not find a very big gap between the center-right and the center-left on uh, where to draw the final lines, on uh, how to handle Iran and, and Syria and, and Hezbollah, or even uh, how to recover the economy from the coronavirus. And because of that, you're able to find parties that will be able to work together to make things better. But what you also have is a lot of personality politics. And that's why we've had elections where the major divide was uh, to be, be or not to be with the overused Shakespeare in comparison. That's something that's kind of hurt our political situation here. It's been learned from America. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to what you said a moment ago about how Prime Minister Netanyahu may, you know, set a permanent border uh, for Israel, at least from the Israeli perspective, um, there's a great deal of concern in the U.S. and Europe over potential Israeli plans to annex uh, part of the West Bank. Now, some of Prime Minister Netanyahu's closest observers, like Haaretz's Anshul Pfeffer, who recently published a well-regarded biography of Netanyahu, say that from what they know of the man, he will never actually go through with those plans. They say that he is you know, conservative, not only in the political sense, but he, he doesn't take big steps. Um, this would be unquestionably uh, a big step. It's also not something he's ever really talked about in his career until about a year ago. He's not someone who, at least publicly, you know, in 2009, when he was first starting this term, 2013, when he was reelected, 2015, when he was reelected, or in earlier terms in the 90s, he's not someone who's kind of publicly fantasized about annexing parts of the West Bank. What do you say, Gil? Is annexation really in the cards? The answer is absolutely, because Netanyahu needs a legacy. And what did he talk about all those years, all those elections that you were talking about? He talked about Iran. He talked about preventing the nuclearization of Iran. Well, that's going to go on after he's gone. Uh, that's not going to be solved. He certainly isn't going to be the one who attacks the nuclear installations in Iran, which would have been a legacy. Uh, Menachem Begin's legacy uh, was that he destroyed the nuclear reactor in Iraq. Ehud uh, Olmert, what positive he has of his legacy is that he prevented Syria from getting nuclear weapons in an area that later on would be taken over by ISIS. Netanyahu, his legacy, ironically, after not talking about it all those years, will apparently end up being diplomatic, not security. He will work together with Donald Trump because of the relationship that he has with him, whether it'll be for the next five months or the next five years. And whatever Donald Trump allows him to do is what Netanyahu will want to be remembered for. Mm-hmm. Last question. The vision for this government, this kind of odd rotational beast, is that Prime Minister Netanyahu will remain prime minister now for 18 months through November of 2021. 
And then Benny Gantz will become prime minister, serve for 18 months. Prime Minister Netanyahu would then do another six months, and Gantz would then do the final six months, rounding out the full four-year term before elections. It is exceedingly rare in Israeli politics that a government actually goes the full term. You know, because there's some kind of squabbling within the coalition, the opposition exploits cracks and drives parties apart. And somehow the person who is serving as prime minister is left holding the bag, realizing that they no longer have uh, a majority of, of members of Knesset supporting them. Even in these early days of the new government, there are some little squabbles, some little, you know, issues popping up that are making it seem like all is not necessarily right in paradise. Do you envision this government going the full four years? Four and a half. The full four and a half years? The way it was uh, elected. In Israel, the year of another election is set for four years after the previous one on the civil calendar. The date is set by the Jewish calendar and ends up being uh, the uh, first week in November. And yes, it is extremely rare that we have gotten there. A lot will depend on Netanyahu's uh, legal cases. Uh, his trial begins on Sunday. It's a big deal. Never had a, a sitting prime minister under trial on corruption charges. The politicians can't bring Netanyahu down. The trial can. And we'll see. Uh, probably in a year and a half, the trial will still be continuing. Just three cases, hundreds of witnesses, going to take time. The prime minister can use very good excuses like I, I'm busy governing that could delay uh, legal hearings. But after that, that other year and a half where you're supposed to have a rotation where Benny Gantz takes over, that's to Netanyahu's advantage. And then his goal is to win. He believes he's innocent, right? And so the, if we're looking at Benny Gantz as a historical figure, the one I compare him to is actually Dmitry Medvedev, who uh, Putin... Putin ruled uh, Russia, and he had to leave for a little bit. He had Medvedev take over while well, he really ran things behind the scenes. And then they w went through that political legal loophole, and, and uh, Putin came back. That's what Netanyahu intends to do. And uh, unless he's really guilty and they find that out pretty quick, uh, that might be something that could happen. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, folks, uh, someday soon, please, God, we'll be let out of our homes and uh, we can all take advantage of some of Gil's insights. If you enjoyed hearing him here and you want him to join you in your community, at your synagogue, JCC, whatever. Gil, how can people get in touch with you? Gil at jpost.com. And after the October, September holidays, I will, if there are airplanes, then I will be <laughs> using them to go back to America. I've spoken to all 50 states, but there are many communities I'd love to come back to or visit for the first time <laughs> all 50 states huh? I, I i wouldn't mind uh speaking in hawaii sometime soon maybe that's in the cards for me all right gil thank you so much and uh we look forward to hearing more from you uh in the months to come thank you Steffi. pleasure Earlier this month, 20 experts in constitutional law, human rights, and journalism were appointed to an independent oversight board to review Facebook's policies on content. The board is independent of Facebook, funded by a $130 million trust, and will determine whether material on the Facebook and Instagram platforms should be allowed or removed. Board membership is expected to double in size. Joining us to talk about this grand experiment is Emmy Palmore, former Director General of Israel's Ministry of Justice and one of the board's first appointees. Ms. Palmore, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. 
First, tell us how you envision this board doing its job and what that job actually is. Basically, the concept is to deal with issues of content that Facebook has been dealing with over the years and not really being able to solve in a way that can truly, um, on one hand, respect uh, freedom of speech and, 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 you know, basic human rights on one hand, and to be able to adjust to so many cultures of 2 billion users across the world, across the globe, that have been confronting, you know, those, those questions with mm-hmm. Facebook. So this is, I call that a regulatory startup. I mean, this is, you know, it's an experiment that probably has more chances to fail than chances to succeed, but it's exciting as every startup is. We try and build a truly diverse board that will make binding decisions on, on issues of content through appeals mm-hmm. that user will send to us or through questions that Facebook will be allowed mm-hmm. uh, to pose to the board. You know, we will try to identify the most important cases, the more meaningful cases, but of course it will be a decision per case, per person, with the hope that you know, every decision will have an impact on, on, you know, many more people than just the one person who appealed. Mm-hmm. Will there will there need to be a unanimous agreement from the board on every case, or how will that be decided? We're starting to figure out how we are supposed to work. Uh, we are supposed to have panels of five every time. Okay we will try to get a consensus. I don't, I can't tell you anything about it because we haven't started and I haven't experienced it. One thing that is very important to make clear because, you know, this is not a censorship committee. Mm-hmm. It's not the police of thoughts. It's the opposite. I mean, I think that our mission is, is with the deepest respect to freedom of speech Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, we understand that sometimes um, it can cause harm. I mean, I see it as about giving a better service to the users. I see myself as someone who came to serve the users, not to serve Facebook, not to mm-hmm. serve technology, not to serve some kind of you know theoretical idea on how things should be. So are there others on the board who bring an expertise or a particular concern about anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, um, and th- those concerns? It's really interesting because I've been advocating diversity my entire professional life. I really think that diversity is crucial in order to make good policies. You know, I, I come from government, I come from, you know, drawing policy and so on. And I must say that I was amazed, you know, in Israel, being a woman is still not uh, something that can uh, assure you that you will have uh, an equal chance uh, to be in politics or to be a director general or to be a CEO. I mean, women are still, I mean, women are so active in, in the Israeli history and so prominent. And yet, and, and there, here, I can see a board that has a 
perfect gender parity, um, 10 women, 10 men. So, so what is your understanding of how Facebook assesses anti-Semitic content? First, I'm not representing Facebook. And, and I think that it's a question that only someone who works in Facebook can really answer in a complete way. I can tell you from my point of view, from my perspective, because I've been dealing it also uh, living in Israel and being a citizen of this world that has become a world um, where social media really enables everyone to react to everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm already 53 years old, so I had the privilege of growing up without social media, you know, with, with, with you know, asking myself whether did I get enough likes or what did people, how did people respond to something I said? But being a public figure in Israel, you know, I've received reactions to interviews. And I mean, the concept of being, you know, attacked by hate speech of any kind, mm-hmm. not necessarily the worst. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a whole scale where you can put hate, hate speech. Um, it's, it's something that our generation and the generation, you know, younger than us, we are exposed in a way that, uh, nobody was exposed not 10 years ago and definitely not 20 years ago. Well, so is there a way to help tech platforms or or social media platforms kind of better understand the complexity of hate speech, and specifically anti-Semitism. And I ask about anti-Semitism, knowing that the board will be addressing all kinds of hate speech, but you know, AJC is particularly concerned about anti-Semitism, and that is the perspective that you bring to the board. I was involved, I initiated a project. Um, there was a new legislation in Israel that dealt with uh, sexual assault online. Mm-hmm. And it was really something new. It took time to explain what it means. I mean, just sending a film, a little video or a picture could be considered a crime in Israel. Mm-hmm. And we realized that um, there are a lot of minors, I mean, young minors that are doing these things. And the way that we thought that we should approach it, which was very uh, novel, you know, was not how we will indict, you know, 13 years old or 14 years old, and we will make everybody know that it's a crime and now they're punished. My approach was that we should try and cooperate with the Ministry of Education and try to explain and to teach what it means and and make sure that these things won't happen. So I'm taking this concept of how I see things to your question. Mm -hmm. I I think that we're not going to solve these problems by regulating technology or by trying to necessarily regulate hate speech. We have to try and think how to approach those issues in other, I mean, in other ways. Mm-hmm. I really, I think that we should try and find this very, very fine line between a world that is not perfect. It's not full of people just loving each other and supporting each other. You know, we're in a world where we have been given a very, very amazing opportunity to express ourselves even when we are not rich or not connected or not. I mean, the idea of social media, the idea of Facebook is an amazing idea. I mean, Mm -hmm. the possibilities, the positive possibilities that it gives the world, that it gives people 
to connect, to speak, to express themselves, to, to oppose things that are happening, not to depend on somebody giving them a microphone, but having this, you know, mm-hmm. theoretical microphone. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we, ch- we should try and figure out how to respect that on one hand. Try to think of every possible way to avoid damage and harm. I appreciated you saying that there are perhaps more chances of it failing than it succeeding. By design, I mean, is that the mindset you have to take with you when you do something like this? So I'm very excited about this. You know, I think it's very challenging. It's very interesting. It it brings together a lot of things that I'm interested in. But I'm also a rational person. So when I analyze, you know, first of all, any startup is more likely, statistically, is more likely to fail than to succeed. And this startup will not be different than any other startup in the world. But also when you analyze it in a very cold way, and even just the one thing that really bothers me, you know, because there are such, I mean, there are a lot of people who are cynical about the board and and they're one challenge, but there are so many people who are hopeful about the board and this is what scares me because there are 2 billion users. We are only 20. We will never be able um, to take care of all the appeals. We have the most difficult thing that we will have to do is the selection of cases. Yeah. And even, you know, just this, I'm not talking even about how our decisions will be. Maybe we will have wonderful decisions, but we will not select the right cases, the right cases will be lost, you know, through this, you know, overwhelming possibility to appeal and so many people will appeal. And who knows if we will have the right system and the right tools Mm -hmm. to make this this selection. We are also supposed to make policy uh, recommendations that are not binding. So I really hope that through this, we will be able to, you know, address bigger issues that we will be able to learn from the appeals, from analyzing the data that we will be able to, to get from these appeals, even though we will not be able to answer each and every person that will appeal to us. In other words, you foresee policy recommendations kind of being based on precedence, on the decisions that you make over time. Yes, and things that we will learn through uh, the precedents, but also through the case selection, because when we will make this case selection, even the, the, the cases that we will not be able to deal with, we, we can learn from them something, mm-hmm. you know, just from the fact that many cases are dealing with a certain issue or many cases come from a certain area in the world. So maybe there is some kind of cultural gap that should be um, taken care of. This is an exciting work in progress and best of luck in this new role. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm very connected to the Jews of the diaspora and uh, I really cherish the opportunities to be in touch. So thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Natalia Mahmoud, AJC Assistant Director of U.S. Muslim-Jewish Relations. 
Natalia, I don't imagine you usually have a Shabbat dinner, but when you're talking with your family and friends at your Eid al-Fitr celebration this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Steffi. Hi, Manya. During Eid, I plan to discuss the Jabara Hire No Hate Act that was part of the stimulus bill passed by the House last week called the HEROES Act. You know, we've all read how COVID-19 has caused a significant spike in hatred against several groups, including Asians, Muslims, and Jews. Just this month, a couple in New York City was charged with multiple hate crimes after spewing anti-Semitic slurs at three Hasidic men in Brooklyn. Sefi and Mania, as you and your listeners are aware, four years ago, AJC, together with Islamic Society of North America, formed the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, or what we call MJAC. It's a coalition of 46 American Muslims and American Jews that have come together to advocate on issues of common concern. And the policy area that we've been working on is to combat the rise in hate crimes. FBI's latest report showed that there were 7,000 hate crime incidents in the United States, approximately 7,000. And Jews remained targets of the majority of the religious-based hate crimes. However, the FBI relies on data voluntarily provided by local law enforcement authorities for its report, and it's missing a lot of information. You know, 80 cities with a population of 100,000 or more reported zero hate crimes or did not submit any data to the FBI. And those cities include Syracuse, New York, and New York, New Jersey. You know, the Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Statistics estimates that Americans experience an average of 250,000 hate crimes each year, but most aren't reported to the police. And like I said, the FBI's latest report showed around 7,000 incidents. So there's a huge gap. We know Congress cannot legislate away hate, but in order for society and coalitions like MJAC to better address hate crimes, we just need better data. So I'm thrilled this bill passed the House. It gives state and local law enforcement authorities the tools they need in order to do a better job in collecting and reporting hate crimes to the FBI. It allows the Department of Justice to use existing funds and give them to cities and states the opportunity to set up trainings and hotlines so people can report hate crime incidents and the law enforcement authorities can track them. You know, the bill had bipartisan support in the House, and I hope that it's included in a coronavirus response package or passed independently in the Senate. Amazing. We and our listeners are hopeful that it passes the Senate as well. Is there anything that we can do to try to make that happen? Yes, listeners can definitely help by visiting ajc.org forward slash no hate to take action. That's one word, ajc.org forward slash no hate. You know, better data should be a bipartisan issue. What will you be talking about, Manya? Well, Natalia, thank you for joining us. And thank you for telling our listeners about this important mission and Eid Mubarak very soon. It's an honor to call you a colleague in this fight. And likewise, Manya. Thank you. At our Shabbat table, my husband and I will be talking about the show that we've been binge watching as much as two exhausted working parents can these days, Mad Men. Now, I watched this show back when it first aired, but my husband, an American historian, did not, and re-watching it with his commentary has made it more enjoyable. He loves the narcotic effect and the theater of it all. He believes fans loved it mainly for that reason, too. To me, it was always so much more. I love the complexity of the characters, the plot twists, and trying to decode every episode, especially those my husband likes to say jump the shark. 
It just so happens this week, another podcast, Unorthodox, a podcast produced by our friends at Tablet Magazine, invited the show's creator to come talk about some of those underlying messages and how his Jewish upbringing shaped the show. The conversation with Matthew Weiner added a whole other layer of complexity. He reveals which characters were Jewish, some unbeknownst to me, and he talks about one of the very early fan theories that what Don Draper was hiding was that he was Jewish. But Weiner also shares a little insight on the final scene. He talked about how moments in history, like the late 60s when revolutions swept the globe and like now as a virus throws us all into chaos, moments like these have always led to a cultural, spiritual awakening and a sense of surrender. Surrender. He used it in a particular context that I don't want to spoil for those who haven't yet watched. But that word struck me as odd. Surrender. And as Mad Men always did, it got me thinking and comparing the show's themes to where we are now. I would argue that there's never a time for surrender, certainly not in a democracy. But maybe that's because of what I do. As a religion reporter and here at AJC, I fight for democracy. That means I fight for the First Amendment, journalism, accountability, religious literacy, and for the safety and future of the Jewish people. I fight because all of these things I just listed are in jeopardy as we speak. The hateful vitriol that has emerged in recent months, pointing blame at Jews and Israelis for spreading or profiting from the virus, the newspapers downsizing in the middle of a public health crisis. Of course, I look to Chicago, where I served with fighters at the Chicago Tribune who have fought to make that city safer, more just, and more compassionate. But the truth is, I'm surrounded by fighters at AJC who have not let the pandemic detract from a vital mission like the one you shared, Natalia. Democracy is in deep trouble, folks. And so I fight for all of these things, and we teach our children that they're worth fighting for. We do not intend to surrender. And that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table before we fight to keep our eyes open for the latest escapades at Sterling, Cooper, Draper, and Price. (laughs) Sefi, what will you be talking about? We'll be talking about camp. Between the five of us in my immediate family, we have personal attachments to about 10 different summer camps, most of them in the Ramah camping movement. Ramah camps just announced this week that they will not be opening in summer 2020. While Ramah is in a relatively strong financial position and it's reasonable to expect that the camps will open as usual in 2021, it's still really sad to think about what Ramahniks and all campers will be missing this summer. I'm thinking of the kids who, for as long as they can remember, were excitedly counting down the years until they'd be in the oldest Ada or age group, ruling the camp. I'm thinking about the kids who are missing their very first summer at camp. I'm thinking of the Yom sport or color war that won't happen. I'm remembering the time my counselors decided that our machaze, our musical, should be Batman. And so they wrote an entire Batman musical from scratch in Hebrew for us to perform. I'm thinking of the hilarious drama that won't play out on stages this summer. I'm thinking of the kids who won't learn how to swim. I'm thinking of the kids who won't learn how to shoot a basketball or throw a frisbee. I'm thinking of the friendships that won't be formed, the first kisses that won't take place, the adventures that won't be had. I'm thinking of the recipes I learned to cook in Mitbachon, the cooking elective, some of which I still make today, though with about one-third of the oil. I'm thinking of Paul Ryan, of all people, the former Speaker of the House, who never had anything to do with Camp Ramah, 
to my knowledge, but who once said that the best preparation for his time as speaker was when he worked as a camp counselor. I'm thinking of all the kids who won't get to be counselors this summer. And that's all just the tip of the iceberg. Many memories won't be made this summer. This week, AJC hosted a conversation between Rabbi David Wolpe and Pastor Serene Jones. They talked about the religious responses to the coronavirus crisis, and they talked a lot about grief and mourning, not only for the lives lost, but for the parts of our lives that we have lost. I think camp is a part of that grief. The conversation was an important one, and I'd urge everyone to watch it and to check out the rest of our remote programming series by heading to ajc.org slash advocacy anywhere. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom, Eid Mubarak. Shabbat shalom and Eid Mubarak. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.